Good afternoon from Singapore. And welcome to the Middle East Institute at National University of Singapore. My name is Alessandro Arduino and I'm Principal Research Fellow at MEI. Today, I'm extremely glad to have with us Dr. Jonathan Fulton in the book discussion on China-Middle East relation. Dr. Jonathan Fulton is a non-resident senior fellow for the Middle East program at the Atlantic Council. He also served as assistant professor of political science at Zayed University in Abu Dhabi. An expert on Chinese policy throughout the Middle East, Dr. Fulton has written widely on the topic. And prior to the handbook that we are going to discuss today, he has been written extensively on China and the Middle East relationship. He's authored China's relation with the Gulf monarchies and co-edited external power and the Gulf monarchy. Jonathan, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much, Alessandro. I really appreciate the chance to speak with you guys today. And just let's start. As uh, your focus on the handbook is quite, uh, let's say, a colossal work in uh, designing and editing this kind of work. So can you explain to our audience why a handbook now on China and the Middle East, why the time is important? And from a very personal point of view, I would like to know what was the puzzle? What was your leading research question? And if this question changed in, over the time uh, during the editing process? Jonathan, the floor is yours. Well, thanks, Alessandro. First, thanks to everybody at the Middle East Institute. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to, to do this. Typically, a big resource like this, a reference book, isn't something we do a book launch for. But I think the topic, China-Middle East relations, is just so important these days. Uh, that it certainly seems worth uh, having more conversations about. So, uh, and you know, I've I've been to MEI uh, a couple of years ago to give a talk, and I really love the work you guys do. So I'm I'm very thankful for the opportunity. Um, why do the book, and why is it timely? I mean, I honestly, I think if this book came out at any point at within any six month window over the past three or four years, it would be timely, because it's become very clear to the rest of the world that China is a major power in the Middle East. For the past 20 years, we've all known that it was a very important economic actor. But even, you know, if, if you look at the, the literature on China-Middle East relations from the earlier part of the century, most of that stuff was dominated by um, energy as, as, you know, the driver of the economic relations. And that's changed, you know. Um, I think China's become an increasingly sophisticated economic actor, you know, in terms of trade, in terms of investment, in terms of finance cooperation, um, across a wide range of, of uh, aid and, and all sorts of contracting, but it's become a bigger actor uh, culturally, socially, politically, and increasingly in security matters as well. So I think what we've seen in the past few years is that there's been a tremendous interest in deeper analysis of what China's doing here because just reducing it to economic isn't satisfying anymore. We have to have a, a deeper understanding. And... Um, now it's especially important because we've seen as the U.S.-China relationship has, has gone from kind of an uneasy interdependence to this period of strategic competition, uh, that affects not just those two countries and their foreign policy or economic or trade policy agendas, that affects countries that are deeply engaged with both. And of course, now that's everybody in the world. So there are places like Singapore or here in the UAE which have very strong partnerships or alliances with both the US and China that are being affected by this. And we're seeing those regions or countries uh, increasingly looking like theaters of competition. So it makes it very important to understand what is the China's doing here? Why is it doing it? And how does it affect others? Um, now, in terms of why I did the book from a personal perspective, I mean, like you said, my first book was China GCC relations. I've been based in the Gulf since 2006, and when I moved here, my focus was was on Asia. You know, I'd lived in Korea and Taiwan for most of my 20s, and I moved here just as not as a, a Middle East guy at all. I, I just wanted to learn more about the region because realizing as somebody who's fascinated by foreign policy, I had to I had to develop that capacity. I had to learn more about the region, and what I found when I came here was that my my passion or my interest in, in East Asian politics actually was, was quite relevant. There was a lot happening here that wasn't being written or talked about very much. 
So I started my PhD on China. You know, my dissertation was on China's relations with the GCC countries. I started in 2011, and it seemed like the very definition of a niche topic. I remember talking to people saying, there's, there's not enough there to, to get a full dissertation. You're going to have to broaden your scope. But, you know, eventually over the period it took to write it, it became very clear that um, I got in on the ground floor of something pretty important and I had pretty lucky timing. Um, in 2019, after I'd finished, I, I started doing some writing for the Atlantic Council and they asked me to write a report on more broadly China-Middle East relations. And I realized there's just so much about it that I didn't know. And I was sitting after writing the report, thinking, kind of making a list of the different stories I wanted to tell about the Middle East or the different things I wanted to learn more about. And it became pretty clear that the list, you know, couldn't be exhausted. And the knowledge it would take to produce it would take me more than a lifetime and language skills and, and area study skills and all this stuff. So I remember sitting in Beijing in 2019, just making a list of things that I wanted to know more about, and then a list of who, who does know about this? You know, who are the, the brilliant people that are experts on these things? And as I started making the, this list, you know, it came, came to mind, like what we need is a, a, a book that brings together a lot of different specialists who can, who can effectively tell these stories. So that's what the handbook does. I mean, you've got 26 chapters. Um, it's an absolute dream team of contributors, including you, of course. Um, as, I was, as I was writing to people, I first was um, really happily surprised that almost everybody said yes. The people who couldn't had really good professional or personal reasons why they couldn't, but everybody was excited by the idea. Um, it was just delightful to, to get emails from all these different people whose work I admire and whose work has helped me so much over the years to say that they would work with me on this. And um, it turned into a really, to me, exciting project. So it looks at um, four sections, kind of big picture, China in the region, uh, what's the strategic landscape for China and for Middle Eastern countries? How does it affect the US? There's a section on uh, country and region case studies, which kind of look at the bilateral or regional relations. There's a section that looks more at economic focused uh, areas and the one on security issues. So I think, um, you know, without modesty, I think this is the most comprehensive book on China Middle East relations in English. Um, and as you said, it couldn't come at a better time because it's really just at a moment where we all realize that China is uh, playing an increasingly um, crucial role in the region. We need to understand it better. No, I definitely agree. Uh, it's a story that is well worth to be told. But uh, still, uh, uh, you mentioned China is a major power in the Middle East. And this kind of discussion has been going on for a while, not only inside the Chinese border, but also uh, outside uh, in several areas. Of course, uh, uh, we can totally agree that China has strong interest in promoting political, economic, and cultural cooperation in the Middle East. Chinese FDI are mayor probably FDI in the country. China is one uh, of the high level trade partner with most of the country in the Middle East. But then uh, if we look at it right now, uh, with Kazakhstan crisis uh, taking China by surprise, Afghanistan crisis near the border, that didn't take, I think, China by surprise as it did for the United States. But then uh, we can say that the Middle East is really a strategic priority for China. Yeah, totally. I mean, so I mentioned the energy component. Of course, that, that doesn't go away. China has tremendous uh, energy import requirements and the Middle East satisfies a lot of that, whether it's in crude oil or, or, or uh, LNG or whatever. Um, so yes, there is an, an economic imperative. Um, but I think that's only one of what I'd say are three of China's core interests, not core interests, one of its primary interests in the Middle East. Um, you know, so energy going to global markets is probably at the top. Uh, freedom of navigation, because it's such a strategically important region that connects so many other regions. Um, and for the Belt and Road Initiative, which is the signature foreign policy of China right now, uh, what you want is to be able to you know, move from across supply chains and, and business clusters 
in a in a safe way. So connecting to markets throughout the Middle East, East Africa, the Mediterranean, um, and overland across Eurasia, the Middle East is very important to that. So freedom of navigation, I think, is also a very important strategic interest for China in the region. And then also just, you know, stability. Again, like you can't get from the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean without passing through through the Middle East. And what you what China wants fundamentally is as much as possible, a, a stable region with a status quo that makes sense. Um, I realize that when we say stable, that that sounds kind of strange given the context of all the security conflicts. But in terms of status quo, what China wants, I think, is for the distribution of power to remain pretty consistent. You know that that leading countries are able to remain so. They're not supporting revisionist actors. They're not supporting non-state actors like they did back in the Cultural Revolution days. They're not. Um, uh, you know, giving privilege to relations with Iran with its efforts to undermine, you know, the status quo. They want a, a Middle East that continues to work the way it has worked for the past couple of de uh, decades, where China's been able to derive tremendous benefits. So I think, yeah, there is a strategic component to what it's doing. And this is interesting because where we look at China and the US as competing global powers, they both have basically the same primary interests in the Middle East. So I see, I know it, it's maybe um, unlikely to see China and the US coordinating in many parts of the world, but here it would actually make sense for them to improve their relationship and, and try to look at it uh, from that perspective, because China is, it is strategically important and China is, you know, uh, I think working to stabilize in, in many of the same ways that America would like to see it stabilized. Again, on this, uh, I'm agreeing, uh, especially to the fact that uh, the Middle East uh, have several overlapping interests, security interests for both China and the United States, so starting from uh, stopping terrorism spread uh, to uh, avoiding any kind of nuclear proliferation and race to nuclear weapon and so on. But at the same time, uh, I don't want to monopolize the discussion. I'm just inviting all our audience. You can submit your question to Dr. Fulton directly via MEI chat, and then I will read it directly to Jonathan. Please allow me just uh, to ask one latest question. As we are here based in Singapore, and you just mentioned the, the geopolitical competition that uh, is stemmed out increasingly since the Anchorage dialogue uh, and even before with the Trump administration between the United States and China, the geopolitical competition in the Middle East, and especially I'm referring to Digital Silk Road, uh, uh, part of the Belt and Road, uh, what that means uh, for countries like Singapore or the UAE that you just mentioned before. Yeah, so I am constantly referring folks here in the Gulf to an article in Foreign Affairs as written by Prime Minister Lee, I think it was published in 2020. And it was just, you know, a Singaporean perspective of what this uh, great power competition, as it was called under the Trump administration, or strategic competition, as, as Biden's administration is framing it, you know, what this means for Singapore, a country that has, you know, longstanding and deep cooperation with both countries, you know, um, the way that it was being framed more overtly in, during the Trump administration was kind of a us or them narrative. And we saw that a lot in, in the Gulf, whether it was things like you said on 5G networks or you know um, Israeli uh, engagement with, with China and Haifa port, um, China trying to build a uh, desalination plant. You know, US officials were overtly going to Middle East allies and partners and saying, we don't want you to engage with China on things that we deem sensitive, things that could you know, affect our um, security commitments to your countries. And this has been a big part of the way the, 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 the US officials have, have been framing this in recent years, whether it's the Trump or the Biden administrations. Um, I think that puts Middle Eastern allies and partners in a very difficult situation because sometimes, whether it's the 5G question, um, this came on, I think, on the US radar in 2019 in a big way. We didn't hear a lot from Washington about the issue prior to that. And then it became very, very, very important. Um, the problem is that it was, the horse was already out of the barn at that point. You know, Middle Eastern countries had been engaging with China on, on 5G and different components of their tech, tech cooperation for at least five years by that point. 
um, it's not like China tried to, to, to sneak this past anybody. In 2014, uh, there was a China Arab States Cooperation Forum meeting when China introduced under Xi Jinping's uh, opening speech, he, he rolled out this one plus two plus three cooperation framework for engaging with Arab countries. And it's limited to Arab and how he framed it, but it's pretty consistent with other countries in the region as well. One in this, in this framework, one is traditional hydrocarbons, energy at the core. Two is working with countries on infrastructure construction and investment um, and three is nuclear energy, uh, renewable energy, and tech. So what you saw starting in 2014 was a, a big official push on things like Beidou satellite navigation systems and, and using this for, for agriculture in the region, which is a core concern for a lot of Middle East countries, but also working on, on things like 5G and developing their fintech and, and, and all this stuff, which most people acknowledge China does at a very, very high level. So you could see, for example, in Saudi, where crowd management is a very, very big concern. Every year there's Hajj pilgrimage and you have millions of people showing up in the country. You've got to be able to navigate these, these, this huge influx of people in terms of providing um, health and safety. And so they've been working with Chinese, with Huawei especially, on using 5G to, 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 to address these problems. So countries already had a pretty deep level of engagement with China in a lot of these technical or technological um, sectors. You know, in, in North Africa, especially, you could see that Huawei was deep. They have a training center in Tunisia and in Morocco, there's a tech city that they're, they're building a lot of different um, areas of this cooperation. So for the US to kind of suddenly realize that this is a, a concern for them, and to say, we want you to stop doing it. Well, do you have something that's affordable? Well, no, but you can go with our, our partner, Ericsson. Well, that's, that costs more than Huawei. We already bought all this stuff from China. We have it like a physical infrastructure to, to support this digital engagement. You're asking us to rip up stuff we've already bought and paid for and then replace it with more expensive stuff because you're worried about how this could affect your interests, but it doesn't really address how this affects our interests. And when the case that the US, I don't think has made very successfully, when they say things like, look, these systems are unreliable, that there may be a backdoor, that we're not sure how they're going to use the data, um, that all could be very true. I, I don't know enough about this, this stuff to say one way or the other, but we all remember when Edward Snowden you know, told everybody what the U.S. is doing in some of its technological um, stuff overseas. And we all know that Facebook has different uh, regulations and how it operates in the U.S. compared to how it operates in, in other countries. And in a lot of those countries, it's seen as a, not a political actor. So it's hard to make the case uh, that, that China's tech is threatening to local interests and U.S. tech isn't when a lot of countries have had the opposite experience. So geopolitically, it gets really, really um, difficult. Uh, I know I'm kind of going off track here, but for countries like the Gulf, where they, they have deep security relationships, which as we saw this week in Abu Dhabi, where I am, are fundamental to stability and security, working with the US on, on defense, but also they work closely with China on, on econom economic issues and technological issues that they think are important. Nobody wants to be in a position where they have to choose one or the other. And it just makes for a very, very uh, complex terrain for them to navigate in the, the next few years. You just mentioned the word rip and replace, and that's the name of the program that is currently running in ripping and replacing Chinese uh, hardware and software in the United States. And the one I think that you were mentioning earlier was the one related to Michael Pompeo when he was head of state uh, right. or the Clear Network Initiative. Uh, on that, of course, from a security standpoint, uh, uh, it's obvious that the threat uh, uh, is clear and present, but then how it percolates into the business, uh, that's a different ball game. And then uh, mid-country uh, don't want to be put in a position to make a decision. And I'm already receiving several questions from our public, and it's one that move out uh, our comfort zone, at least mine, on security and geopolitics. And uh, is Chinese soft power in the Middle East uh, and your opinion on the role of Confucius Institute? 
Huh. Well, Chinese soft power, we could do like an entire, you know, panel, like afternoon long panel discussion on this. Um, I think, so yeah, there's a lot of Confucius Institutes um, of varying levels of success or failure. I mean, if you look at a lot of Western countries, they've been increasingly looking at the Confucius Institutes as a, a you know, tool of the, the Communist Party. And a lot of Western countries uh, have been ending their relationships, a lot of Western institutions. Uh, we haven't seen that much here. You know, I think what, what a lot of people in the region realize is that yes, China's becoming important um, to their economic future and, and potentially their, their you know, political and security futures as well. But there's not a deep pool of China expertise or knowledge production in the Middle East yet. It's still considered very foreign. Uh, so I think any opportunity to develop that capacity is going to be welcome. Uh, but that said, you know, my university has a Confucius Institute and our, our, our students aren't really engaging with it in the way that you would expect. You would think that our, our students would say, hey, this is a great opportunity to develop a skill that will be really useful for our future. But I think the problems, number one, is that Chinese is considered very difficult, which, you know, we all know it, it is. But I lived in Korea for five years and I found Korean a much more grammatically challenging language than Chinese. Chinese grammar, I, I love, um, you know, the writing, I would have a few suggestions, but I didn't find it that com complicated compared to Korean, which I found very hard. And my students are all studying Korean and they're reaching very good levels of fluency. So I think that brings to mind the other thing. When I ask my students, name a Korean, they go on forever. Oh, I love BTS. I love Squid Game. I love blah, blah, blah. They, they've got like a huge list. And Korea's had a very successful um, soft power projection. When I ask my students, name a Chinese person, it usually begins and ends with Bruce Lee, who I say, you know, obviously is from San Francisco. And they'll say Jackie Chan. And I'm like, eh, Hong Kong, you know, maybe you can stretch it. Uh, one last week said Mao. And I was like, well, can you name somebody who's alive? And it's always really stretching. And I think that's the second point, not just the difficulty, but the fact that China is considered very foreign and inaccessible to a lot of people here. They don't have the same cultural familiarity. And I think that's a soft power failure. And I think the reason why is those countries with great soft power projection, like Japan or Korea or India, you know, this is stuff that's not being state-led cultural products. These are, you know, manga, anime, K-pop, you know, stuff that's made at a personal level by creative people that can exist in a country that don't have to worry about censorship or self-censorship. They can make awesome movies. And when I lived in Korea, the movies I loved, you know, they made wonderful art house films and wonderful, deep, complex, thoughtful films. And they made madcap comedies and silly romance things, you know, a whole gamut. It's, it's a normal film industry. Uh, the Chinese film industry does have some great stuff, but it doesn't typically project international, like in China, they have to worry about state censorship. So they often make things that can make it past that. And the fact is that stuff is often kind of verging on propaganda in a lot of ways. It's written or produced with the state in mind, which means it doesn't travel as easily beyond the state. You know, people don't want to consume pop culture that glorifies the party. They want stuff that speaks to them in a more, you know, personal way. And that personal thing is often universal, you know, um, which is why Korean stuff works or Japanese stuff or Turkish or Indian or American or whatever. So I think the soft power problem China faces is a matter of target. A lot of the state led stuff is produced for other states to say, look, economic growth without political reform, you know, our strong state model will help your country. And elites love that, right? They want to have that and develop that in their own countries. But the stuff that speaks, you know, to just individuals, to students, hip hop songs about Xi Jinping don't travel in the Gulf. So it, it's, it's soft power is still pretty weak because they haven't found a way to thread that needle of making stuff that reaches a broader audience in a, in a meaningful way. In discussing Chinese soft power, there is always the question if it's just hard power used softly. But since we start this webinar, is the first time I profoundly disagree with you in the fact that Chinese grammar being not so, uh, let's say, uh, precise, make it even more difficult 
in, in mm -hmm. the Brighton part of the language. I recall a Jesuit priest, Father Dent, recalled that he wrote a couple of hundred years ago that only with the help of God you can study that language. And I still stay with that. Well, now, that's several... so easy, but I used to teach English as a second language. And, you know, having like all these verb tenses to, to explain to students. And then you just say, like, I eat, I yesterday eat, I tomorrow eat. I can appreciate that. And moving from language to another question, uh, we have a question about there is a new quote in town with India, Israel, US, and UAE. How this will impact on China? Um, well, my short answer is not very much, I suspect, because I don't really believe that it's, you know, it seems like a branding exercise. Um, India's foreign policy in the Gulf, I think, or in the Middle East, um, has the potential to be very, very important. But India is bogged down, not just in its own domestic issues, but in the fact that, you know, it, it should be a hegemon in South Asia, but it's not, right? It's got so many challenges within its own region. It's got problems with Pakistan. It's got problems with, with other countries that, that don't want to engage deeply with it because they're worried about being consumed by China's, or sorry, India's bigger market. And then there's the fact that China has been picking at the edges, you know, with the BRI working with Nepal, Maldives, Sri Lanka, Pakistan. Um, you know, I think India is really bogged down uh, in its own region in a way that prevents it from being a, a serious actor in the Middle East. I don't see any Indian um, government officials really going beyond speeches about what they're going to do in the region, region in an important way. So when this, you know, India, US, UAE and, and Israel um, foreign ministers meeting happened and it got hyped up as a new quad. I mean, I get why, why they did that. It sounds pretty sexy. It sounds pretty exciting. But since then, I haven't seen anything. And I'm, I'm watching this intensely. It's not really making a, any kind of dent. Um, and also the fact that it, a lot of this stuff assumes, like when the Abraham Accords were announced, this was being um, projected or sold as a way that was going to effectively developed this, this strong axis, you know, from the Mediterranean to the Gulf with the US at the center and limit Chinese gains. You know, and this was happening at the exact same moment that China was producing Sinopharm vaccine here in Abu Dhabi, and they were working with Israel on a lot of AI and tech stuff. So, you know, I think anything that contributes to regional stability isn't just in US interests, it's also in China's interests. When, when Israel and, and, and the UAE start to tighten relations, nice. You know, I, I don't think that threatens China. I think it helps China. So I don't, you know, I, I really am skeptical of this idea that there's like a, a Middle East quad. Uh, I don't think that actors here in the UAE or Israel want to engage with it in that way because I don't think they want to, you know, damage the gains they've made with China through, you know, painstaking diplomacy and trade and investment over a long period of time. It's not like they can just throw it all in the garbage because you know there was a meeting last month. So I think any expectation that this is going to fundamentally change the, the calculus in the region, oh, I, I, I would disagree with that. Oh, and that also, uh, there is a previous statement to that, that uh, is the GCC very high level uh, diplomatic visit to Beijing just a few weeks ago and that it can be is a case in point uh, about the direction that the Gulf may take in relation with China. Uh, moving from uh, the Gulf uh, to the Persian Gulf to Iran, I have a question from Dr. Razif Shuja, my colleague, that he just moderated a couple of days ago a terrific panel on Iran and JCPOA. And the question from Aziv is, China has been challenging the United States supremacy across all strategic spectrum. Do you see China challenging the US supremacy in the realm of dollar supremacy? especially leveraging the China-Russia-Iran bloc created in response to the U.S. sanction on all the three. Do you see this happen in the future if currency is more digitalized and China surpassed the U.S. in the digital world? Mm. When we start talking about currency issues, I'm totally out of my depth. I mean, I can do the politics, but anything that sounds like math or economics, um, I have a hard time with. Um, 
I mean, it does make sense to project that most of the energy exporters' primary markets are not the U.S., so that the U.S. dollar would be, you know, the benchmark for a lot of these ener this energy trade doesn't really make much sense. And you can see China's been building a lot of financial institutions in Dubai and Riyadh and Qatar, and and they've got currency swap agreements where goods and services can can use the yuan instead of using the dollar. Uh, could that come to include energy? Well, I don't know. I mean, that seems in a lot of ways a bridge too far because that assumes that these countries are going to really he um, stop hedging and move away from the U.S. And I don't think I don't think that's the case. You can hear leaders in Saudi whenever there's a, a, a very frequent diplomatic spat between the Saudis and Americans, that's something that might come up is they'll say, look, we're going to dump our American bonds or we're going to start you know, uh, diversifying and, and getting rid of some of our American holdings. But that would hurt the, the domestic investors in Saudi as much as it would hurt America. So I can't imagine that they would do this. Um, what I do kind of take issue with is this idea that there's a Russia, China, Iran block, because that assumes a level of coordination or alignment that I just think is, is deeply exaggerated in a lot of ways. And I understand why, because it's, it's a very politicized issue. You know, the, the, the US has this two plus three framework uh, where its two primary uh, threats are Russia and China, and its three secondary threats are Iran, North Korea, and terrorism. So if you can put Russia, China, and Iran together in one bundle, that's going to really, you know, scare a lot of people. And it seems to undermine a very strategically important region. But as I said a few minutes ago, China's preference is for, for stability. And the, the three core inter, three primary interests in the Middle East I listed are the three primary interests of the US as well. So it's important, I think, to look at it from this, this perspective that where China and the US might disagree in the South China Sea or in a lot of other areas, here they tend to line up pretty neatly. I don't think that's the case with Russia. You know, I think a lot of Russia's interests are actually in, in competition with American or Chinese interests. And I think when they cooperate with Iran, first of all, you know, when, when they had their first trilateral naval drill in, what was it, 2019, it seems so long ago, that got all of the headlines. You know, the three scary revisionist powers are cooperating in, in military affairs now. None of the headlines referred to the fact that the Chinese, you know, People's Liberation Army Navy had just conducted a very long similar drill with the Saudi Navy like the month before, you know, China continues to maintain this, this somewhat balanced approach to the region. Um, and I think that's important because what China does with Iran, I think is opportunism. You know, Iran is potentially a very important country, but potentially is the key word there. You know, Iran is isolated within its own region. It's always either under sanctions or under the threat of sanctions. And China's primary interests in the region are economic. So yes, and a market of 85 million people is tremendously uh, attractive, but when those 85 million people have no financial institutions that work internationally and uh, their economy is, has been hammered by maximum pressure, it's a lot less attractive. So what China does economically in the Gulf tremendously favors the Arab side, and it's not even close. Um, and then you look at, you know, I, I mentioned the Belt and Road. The BRI is, is, is fundamental to a lot of what China is trying to achieve internationally. In the Belt and Road, whether you agree that it's geopolitical or geoeconomic, in either case, it's about connecting markets and countries and moving from region to region, you know, whether it's markets or, or supply chains or business clusters or strategic ports or whatever. A country's level of connectivity with other important countries is fundamental to how useful that country is going to be in the Belt and Road. So the UAE, with its great logistics capacity and its, its ports and its international airlines, the UAE is a very useful BRI partner. Uh, Saudi, with its geography, you know, the Persian Gulf Gulf Line and, and Red Sea Gulf or, or Red Sea Coastline, Saudi is an important actor. Iran could be, but it's not. It's isolated within its region, economically doesn't do much for them, 
and the overland route passes through places like Afghanistan and Turkmenistan, you know, where not to, to insult those countries, but their, their markets, they're, they're largely rural, that, that you don't get the same kind of big urban centers with big markets to engage. You've got to traverse large rural areas to get anywhere. So I, I really think the idea that Iran is some strategic partner for China, either in its international political ambitions or in its Belt and Road economic ambitions, I think that's a massive misreading of, of, of what China and Iran represent to each other. Iran needs China. China takes advantage of that to achieve political gains. And I think mostly it's things like, look, we'll, we'll cooperate with Iran. We'll give them this 25-year strategic cooperation or comprehensive strategic partnership and allow it to apply for full membership in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Both of these things happened uh, last spring and summer. But again, those things are useless without access to international financial institutions. You can't take advantage of the comprehensive strategic partnership if your banks don't operate in other countries. Uh, you can't take advantage of the, the investment from the SEO if, if you're under sanctions. So I think what China did was said, look, Iran, here's a path to what you need. We'll give you the partnership and we'll let you join the SEO if you come back to the table with the JCPOA and, you know, and, and cooperate and stop messing around and, and destabilizing an important region. You do this thing, and this is the path towards normalcy or greater economic engagement. But without this, I can't see the partnership or the SCO thing going anywhere because it limits what Iran can achieve through them. So I think China's just building Iran up as a, as a, a bargaining chip for its bigger relationship with the US. On this is undiscutable that uh, Chinese economic lifeline to Iran is essential. And when other country are talking about digital have the option to differentiate from one to the other, Iran doesn't have this option. I will link now uh, what you just said with a question from Ahmed Jamali. Uh, you partially already answered, and Ahmed uh, asked how China deal with Saudi-Iran geopolitical rivalry, given the historic animosity and the regional security dynamic. Does China has any grand strategy throughout the Middle East? If a crisis instability erupts in the future, and I can add that if we can see in a future not too far, a nuclear Iran and a nuclear race with the Saudi looking at nuclear weapons. Sure. Well, as a political scientist, I, I have a hard time measuring anybody's grand strategy because it's just kind of a, a, a messy concept. I don't know if we could say China has a grand strategy for the Middle East, but I think the Middle East features in its overall, you know, global strategy. You know, it's, it's just so important for reasons I already mentioned, the geography, the energy. Um, how does China navigate these rivalries? Well, Okay, so I mentioned a minute ago the, the comprehensive strategic partnership with Iran. And this was, you know, during the foreign ministers meetings two weeks ago, they said that it, they'd reached the implementation stage. So it was, I guess, finalized in March 2021. It's being implemented now in January 2022. But the thing is, it was signed initially in January 2016. You know, so we're looking at a six year period from conceptualization to implementation. And everybody is focusing on this partnership agreement, but the fact is they signed a comprehensive strategic partnership agreement with the Saudis a couple of days before they signed the same one with Iran. And the difference is there aren't any stumbling blocks between China and Saudi. They immediately appointed the crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, as the, the point guard on the Saudi side. They, have, they appointed then uh, Chinese Vice Premier uh, Han, um, Zhang Gaoli as the, the Chinese point guard. So they took two incredibly influential people in government and said, you are going to be managing this very important partnership. And it, it was implemented immediately. They set up a, what they call the high-level joint committee. They had annual meetings where tens of billions of dollars worth of MOUs were signed. And then in the next meeting, those MOUs would become contracts. In the next meeting, you would see how it was being operationalized. Um, in 2018, they signed a similar deal with the Emiratis. And same deal, you know, Yang Jiechi became the point guard on the UAE portfolio for, for PRC. Of course, state councilor, one of the most important people in government. 
and in the UAE, Khaldunul Mubarak, who is uh, the the CEO of Mubadala, um, very influential uh, guy here in in Abu Dhabi, um, became the special presidential uh, envoy to to China, and same deal. They immediately operationalized this thing, and it's already paid off tremendous benefits in 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 a very short time. Um, they had a joint investment uh, fund, and then they start cooperating on COVID and AI and any number of things. So what we saw was immediate implement, implementation and diversification with the Saudis and Emiratis, and then a six-year period of, of um, hemming and hawing with the Iranians. Um, so I think when we ask how are they navigating it, it's pretty clear. You know, on one side, there's a lot of rhetorical support for the Iranians that hasn't really gone anywhere, mostly because Iran is you know, uh, the, the Iranian relationship with the U.S. limits what most countries can do with it. Most countries in the world would love to have a normal relationship with Iran if they could, because they see it as a very important market. You know, India has been wanting to develop Chabahar port for like 20 years. And every time they start, something politically happens between the U.S. and Iran relationship, and it sets them back. Um, and, and the calculus has been the same with China. For, for, for all they say in support of Iran, they, they've managed to do quite little. So on the one hand, um, the way they've approached it, I think, is they, they have been favoring this side of the Gulf over the Iranian side. But at the same time, why, why insult or antagonize a country that could be very useful in the future? So I think they have a pretty balanced approach. I think the reason they see Iran differently is because they didn't have hostages held in Tehran for 444 days, you know, the way the Americans did. They never had, you know, the same kind of alliance relationship with Iran that the way the U.S. did. You know, the U.S., I think, looks at Iran, um, you know, going back to, to the hostage situation and the revolution um, as, you know, a pretty serious emotional breakup. But then the way Iran has behaved under, you know, so-called Pax Americana in the region, you know, it's been a revisionist actor trying to drive the U.S. out of the region. It's, 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 been, it's been supporting terrorists. It's been supporting non-state uh, proxies that, that attack U.S. allies. You know, there are a lot of reasons why the U.S. sees Iran the way it does. But China doesn't share that experience. So they're able to have a different approach to it. So I think the way they look at it is, you know, we can be friends with, you know, limitations on that with Iran. Um, we're going to say we're at the same level of friendship with everybody by having these comprehensive strategic partnerships across the region. But when you look at the numbers, it's not, it's not neutrality. You know, China does have preferences and interests. It just doesn't, you know, yell them out into the internet all the time, the way other countries might, they, they're, they're much more subtle about it. And uh, I see that questions are flooding for our audience. Uh, I will move uh, to one from a colleague of mine, Dr. James Dorsey, and he's interested to know more your opinion about Hajj and Umrah management of the People Republic of China citizen, and on the other side of the coin, Muslim minority in China as viewed from the Middle East. Well, I'm sure James could talk more about the Hajj pilgrimage and 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 and. China much more eloquently and knowledgeably than I can. Um, but on issues of Muslim minorities in China, I mean, we can't talk about China Middle East without talking about it because it's always the hot button issue, at least from the outside, from the inside, it doesn't really resonate much at all. Um, you'll see it pretty consistently that Western- Oh, I apologize, Jonathan. It's not James Dorsey, it's James Sideway. It was James uh, in the think and it's my fault in reading that, James okay. Sideway. Okay. Um, well, on the so I'll, I'll just finish my thoughts on the on the Muslim minorities in China and how that relates here, or how it doesn't resonate here. Um, I think in a lot of Western liberal democracies, this is an issue that a lot of people are troubled by um, because it's troubling. Like I'm not I'm not saying it's not. Obviously, the way that China is handling not just religious minorities, but you know, a lot of different groups that aren't, don't typically fit the narrative of what the party considers China is, is troubling. And, and that goes beyond, you know, into Xinjiang and Tibet and Hong Kong and Taiwan, where I lived for two years and, and have deep respect for and admiration. And, um, but those issues aren't hot button issues for a lot of folks in the Middle East. And I think it's puzzling 
to a lot of people because they, especially if you look at countries like Saudi or Iran or Turkey, which, you know, uh, promote themselves as leaders of the Muslim world, uh, how is it you engage with China, which is treating especially Uyghurs in, in, a, in a pretty um, awful way? And uh, there's a bunch of possible explanations. I can't be uh, definitive because obviously I'm not Arab, I'm not Muslim, and I don't have access to leaders who are making the decisions. Uh, but I do know that when I talk to my students about this stuff in a roundabout way, very few people know much about it. It's not being reported in in the media very heavily, as far as I can tell. That might, I, I know that's not true in, in places like Turkey or Israel that have more open media, but in much of the Middle East, media is state-owned and governments haven't been really talking about this issue in the same, the same level. So the people who I talk with here that do know about it are, are going out of their way to learn about it and usually by engaging with foreign press, which you know most people don't do, right? Um, another issue is on messaging. The Chinese government has been pretty consistent in saying what they're doing specifically in Xinjiang is in response to uh, what they consider a separatist ideology, which is threatening the state and is based on conservative interpretations of, of religion. So when they say this is a, a, a branch of political Islam that is promoting separatism, and has links to an organization that has a committed acts of terrorism in the past, um, that's something that in the Middle East, that resonates, right? A lot of Middle Eastern governments are worried about separatist movements, about state strength, worried about political Islamic groups challenging state authority. So the Chinese government says, look, this isn't pretty, but this is our response to political Islam. And some governments in, in, in the Middle East will say, well, we, 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 have, we share the same threat perception of this issue, and politically it's not easy, but I think they can, can somewhat justify it in that way. Um, and then on a maybe more cynical note is that the Uyghurs we know are an ethnic Turkic group, and uh, there's a lot of competition between Turkey and other Sunni um, Muslim countries in the region, especially Saudi. So it's easy to say, look, Erdogan thinks he's the boss. Why isn't he fixing this? You know, they're Turkic people. He's the leader of all the Turks. He wants to be a leader of Sunni Muslims. Why isn't he doing more about this? And you'll see, like, Turkey's been inconsistent here. The foreign minister went, you know, issued a pretty damning statement in 2019. And then it was walked back when, when Erdogan visited later that year. Uh, I don't think he specifically walked it back. But after his visit, the Chinese government issued a statement that said something along the lines of, you know, President Erdogan agrees with China's policy and approach in, to, to the Uyghur situation in, in Xinjiang, and the Turkish government, at least internationally, didn't push back against that. So it is a pretty complex issue, and it's something that I think a lot of people would expect would, would drive, would be kind of a wedge issue between Middle Eastern countries and China, but possibly for the reasons I just said, it, it hasn't been so far. There could be another reason, uh, the last one I can think of is that I'd mentioned those, those domestic issues in China of Xinjiang, Tibet, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. Um, when countries have publicly pushed on this, those countries have experienced the sharp and the coercive side of Chinese economic statecraft. You know, you think of like when Liu Xiaobo gets the Nobel Peace Prize, what happens? When, China, when Korea puts the THAAD missile defense system, what happens? Um, you know, when countries say something inconsistent with one child Paul or not one child, one China policy, or when they, you know, support Taiwan, they all face, you know, economic pr pressure or overt sanctions. Um, no country in the Middle East has been on the sharp end of China's economic statecraft yet. You know, China always talks about win-win economic relations or win-win diplomacy. And that's been the case here because things that happen inside China aren't a core interest of Middle Eastern countries. And the Middle East isn't a core interest of China. It's far more concerned about its domestic pressures, political and economic. So I think maybe that is another factor as well that countries here realize we could criticize China on something that doesn't really matter to us that much. We would get nothing from it and we would lose a lot. So what, why would we do this, right? 
it just doesn't seem to make much sense. So I think there's a number of reasons why. And now, uh, as you wrote a handbook, I'm, you are going to get questions from every direction and every angle, and it's the lay of the land. And one is from uh, my colleague uh, Aisha in looking uh, at uh, China intervention in the Middle East uh, in the area of clean energy and sustainability relations. And I hope this time that I say the name right as my colleague Aisha Al-Sarini and not another Aisha in, on the floor. Back to you, Jonathan. Sure. So this is interesting because it's something, again, I mentioned this one plus two plus three um, cooperation framework and, you know, renewables is part of that, that last bucket of three, you know, to work in non-traditional energy. And this is something that China actually has, you know, a pretty strong track record, right? I don't think any country with China's en energy requirements wants to be reliant on imports indefinitely. So they've been working on solar excuse me, working on other ways to, 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 to address their energy concerns. We can see the same things across the Middle East. You know, less than uh, two kilometers from my house is this place called Mazdar City here in Abu Dhabi, which is meant to be a carbon neutral city. Um, it's covered with panels. It's covered with institutes to study, you know, alternative energy, because I think in the Middle East, they realize uh, these are countries that, that burn through energy at a really you know, unsustainable pace. We all know them as tremendous importers, but they're also tremendous consumers, you know, to desalinate water the way the GCC countries do, or to use ACE air conditioning the way they do, to have golf courses in every direction, you know, beautifully manicured golf courses. They, they use a lot of energy here. So I think they're looking at some of these Chinese tech in innovations. Um, these Chinese companies are doing quite well. So in Dubai, They've uh, worked with a, a Saudi company, uh, the Shanghai Power Corporation, I think, worked with the Saudi company to develop this. It's called the Sheikh Rashid or Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum solar plant. It's the biggest, I think, in the world, you know, in, in Chinese tech and, and Saudi um, regional know how and Saudi funding, I think, uh, help, help put this thing together. Um, that venture has, has turned into a fund between those two, I think. Uh, there was actually a partnership that was developed and they're going to be working around the region to develop more uh, green energy uh, ventures around the Middle East. Because again, in the, in the Gulf countries, but in most Middle East countries, you'll see these McKinsey design vision, uh, economic diversi diversification projects. And a lot of them rely on things like more efficient use of energy. And a lot of that requires, requires foreign tech. And, and China's actually made pretty good gains on that. So it would be kind of an interesting, um, you know, historical joke if one day China ended up being a major energy source for the Middle East. But uh, I don't know if we're anywhere close to that, and I'm really not enough of an energy specialist to speak on it. But I would, I would recommend my uh, my good friend and colleague who graduated from NUS, uh, Dr. Lee Chen Sim. She's a professor here at Khalifa University, and she's an energy specialist. And she just co-edited a book with Robin Mills uh, on on non-traditional energy in the in the Gulf, and I'm sure that they address this question a lot more eloquently than I could. And uh, if we are still talking about sci-fi scenario, not only on China providing energy to the Middle East, but on China providing security to the Middle East, uh, I just rope in the next question from Tracy Lin. Tracy is asking you how far China is willing to go to protect its interests and asset in the region. There are reports alleging that China is searching for a military base hub in the region, valid. If so, then to what extent? Huh, this is, you're gonna to try to get me to lose my visa, eh? <laughs> okay, um, China has had a pretty modest security footprint in the region. Um, you can look at China's capacity, you know, its lack of, of power projection, naval power projection um, as, as, a, as one reason for that. Um, I think until recently, the bigger explanation has just been that, like everybody with deep interests in the region, uh, China's been able to kind of free ride under this U.S. security architecture. Um, a lot of countries that do a lot of trade here or have a lot of expatriate citizens or have a lot of assets didn't have to pay any kind of corresponding security costs 
because the US has 35,000 troops in the Gulf and bases all over the place and lots of hardware. And again, Abu Dhabi was the beneficiary of that this week when these missiles were, were launched into the Abu Dhabi from, uh, from the Houthis. Um, now, China, just like everybody else, why would they, why would they invest in securing the region? Because the US would ask other countries to play a bigger role. You know, we've seen this consistently and you, you can put a, a UK base in, in Bahrain or you can see a French base here in Abu Dhabi. Um, these things aren't challenging American order or American preferences because these are US partners or allies. Um, when the US would chide China as a free rider with the expectation that China should do more to provide uh, for regional security, I think the expectation is under US preferences, uh, you know, let your Navy work in our, our uh, you know, Operation Sentinel. Well, when China sees itself as US, in, in every US strategic document as a, as a competitor, you can understand that Chinese military leaders would be reluctant to engage under US leadership in, in military affairs. So I think they always kept a pretty modest footprint just out of a, you know, the the desire not to, you know, uh, cooperate with the U.S. in a way that might be compromising, and B, why antagonize the U.S. if you don't have to? If you can keep getting the benefits without challenging America, then that's a great deal. Now, I think what changed it obviously is is uh, not to place too much blame on an individual, but under the Trump administration, when China was labeled as a strategic competitor in the 2017 National Strategic uh, Security Documents. Um, and when the trade war was launched, I think folks in Beijing probably looked differently at the landscape. They, they thought, look, if, uh, if our interests may not be secured under US military leadership or US military cooperation, then maybe we have to play a bigger role in, in securing this ourselves. And what we've seen is China's been making smaller steps towards this. So there was this story in the Wall Street Journal first last May and then in November that China was building some kind of installation here in Abu Dhabi. Uh, the UAE government has strongly denied that there's any military uh, utility to it. Uh, the US government seems to think there was. Um, to me, when I look at it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would China put something in the heart of, you know, this American network of bases and troops and hardware when China doesn't have any, you know, connecting bases across the region to, to support it if they needed to? I mean, it really be putting it in the heart of, of America's naval power, right? They've got the bases in Qatar and here and in Bahrain with the Fifth Fleet. You know, China would be very exposed if they actually did put some kind of military installation in the UAE. So I, I, I am hesitant. I, I kind of agree, not because I'm a shill for the government, but just from a strategic perspective, it doesn't make much sense to me. Um, but they have been doing other things. Like I have an article coming out maybe in a couple of hours with the Atlantic Council. Uh, China has been wet, trying to wedge itself between the US and its allies around the world. And I think they've been doing it more and more in the Gulf. So there was a story in December that China's helping Saudi develop an indigenous ballistic missile program. Um, that wouldn't be inconsistent. China's worked with the Saudis on ballistic missiles since the 80s. Um, they've got a UAV factory in Saudi. You know, these are things that the Saudis couldn't get from America, so they got them from China. Um, you know, when questioned about it, China didn't deny it. They said there's nothing dodgy about this. Saudi needs it. We can help them with it. It's normal. So. You know, I think what they are doing is, is showing countries around the region that um, they are capable of providing things that America has been hesitant to provide. Uh, and then just on a kind of a political point, when, when all these foreign ministers came here two weeks ago and, uh, you know, they had all of their kind of important but not very um, consequential meetings, after they left, Wang Yi, the foreign minister of, of uh, China, said the Middle East, the Middle Eastern people are the masters of the Middle East. They don't need a foreign patriarch. Uh, there's no power vacuum. You know, this is kind of a foreign construct. And it was just, it wasn't even veiled. He was saying, the problem you have is, is outside interference. We're not going to engage you in this way. 
we're going to help you have the tools you need to protect yourselves and, and lead yourselves. Now, again, with the, this attack from the Houthis, these two attacks in the past couple of weeks, I think that's, if anything, going to make a lot of leaders in the region appreciate the, the American commitments even more. But, you know, China's articulating uh, an alternative security approach from a great power perspective. And I think a lot of people in the Middle East are, are, are willing to listen if they're not willing to, to really commit to it. Thank you, Jonathan. We still have uh, almost a dozen of questions waiting for your answer, but I have to apologize with our audience because unfortunately, this hour already run out and really quick, I have to say. So please uh, allow me to uh, thank Jonathan Fulton for being with us today, to thank uh, the Middle East Institute uh, event team to support in the background and especially to thanks all our audience for being with us. And I'm sure I apologize again for the one I was not able to ask the question. You can send one email to Jonathan. Thank you again <laughs> to everybody and Thank enjoy you. a great day. Thanks so much, Alessandro. Really appreciate it.